0: Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee. All the best. As many listeners know, I spent 15 years of my life in Northern California. Two of my kids were born there. And honestly, no matter where I live for the rest of my life, it's my favorite place on earth. And if I can figure out how to be buried under an oak tree in Rancho San Antonio in the Los Altos Hills, then that is where I want to be. So Northern California really does feel like home to me. And yet, One day, as my daughter Lindsay and I were taking a walk along the oak and eucalyptus-lined streets by our home, she started talking about some indigenous North American authors that she was reading in high school. And she started to cry, and she said to me, Mom, we live on stolen land. And I remember exactly where I was standing when she said that. It wasn't that I didn't know that. I had always felt really sad and I felt conflicted. For example, when I was little and I would read the Little House on the Prairie series. And I learned a little bit of Native American history in classes here and there as I grew up in Colorado. But when Lindsay said it like that, we live on stolen land, for some reason, everything shifted for me. And our family began talking about it a lot and asking questions specifically about the original occupants and inhabitants of the land that we were then living on. So thankfully, my kids had learned more than I had learned as a child. They, they learned about the Olone tribe during their California history units. But these units also kind of glossed over those topics and mostly talked about the California mission system, the rancho system, and the gold rush. And really, for all that we could tell where we lived, all trace of Indigenous lives and culture were gone as far as we could see when we were talking about it. And to my knowledge, we didn't know any Native American people. They are in the heart of what has become known as Silicon Valley. So when I saw the title of the book, We Are Dancing for You, Native Feminisms and the Revitalization of Women's Coming-of-Age Ceremonies by Kutcha Risling-Baldy, I knew I wanted to read it, but I didn't know that it was about the indigenous people of Northern California, not the Ohlone where we lived, but farther north, the Hoopa Valley tribe. And I want to start this episode with a quote from the book as we begin, quote, Our histories as indigenous peoples in California are real, lived, and continuing, yet not enough people know about what happened in California. There are no public memorials to the hundreds of thousands of people killed in order to claim their land, their children, their homes, and their resources. History books erase the brutality of the missions, Rancho system, and Gold Rush." And that's the end of the quote. And that hit me deep, and I can attest from personal experience, Having had kids grow up there, that is true. And this book opened my eyes not only to the past, but to an incredibly hopeful and beautiful vision of the present and future in Indigenous lives. And I'm so grateful I read it and highly recommend to listeners that you buy it. And I'm thrilled to welcome to the program today the author of this book, Katja Risling baldy Thank you so much for being here, Katja. Thank you for having me. So I'll start out by reading quickly your official bio, your professional bio, and then you can introduce us to you a little more personally. Dr. Kutcha Risling-Baldy is an associate professor and department chair of Native American studies at Humboldt State University. Her research is focused on indigenous feminisms, California Indians, and decolonization. She received her PhD in Native American studies with a designated emphasis in feminist theory and research from the University of California, Davis, and her MFA in creative writing and literary research from San Diego State University. She has her BA in psychology from Stanford University, and she has published in the Ecological Processes Journal, the Wicazo Sa Review, and the Decolonization, Indigeneity, Education, and Society Journal. She's also published creative writing in the As Us journal and News from Native California. And she's the author of a popular blog that explores issues of social justice, history, and California Indian politics and culture, which can be found at kacharislingbaldi.com forward slash blog. And so, again, I really recommend that listeners check all of that out. Dr. Baldi, also, I, I was going to read the next section about your background and your affiliation with the tribes in northern california but i actually love you to tell that part of your story yourself can you tell us where you're from a little bit about your family and what has brought you to the work that you do yeah of
1: course so hey young kilet dr ketcher risling baldi i am ketcher risling baldi i'm hupa in karuk and enrolled in the hupa valley tribe they're the three largest tribes in northern california And I was born and raised in the Gut Dini area of Wiat territory, which is out on the coast about, well, it's about an hour and a half from our reservation. Regular people drive it, but when we drive it, it takes about 45 minutes. So that's what we tell people. But our reservation is located somewhat inland in our Aboriginal territory. I think what's really beautiful about the Northern California region, the far Northern California region, where they say we live kind of behind the Redwood Curtain, is that most of our tribal peoples in this area are still in their Aboriginal territories. I grew up in the Aboriginal territory of the Wiat peoples. That includes the Bear River Rancheria, the Blue Lake Rancheria, and the Wiat tribe. The Hoopa Valley tribe is still in their Aboriginal territory. Our valley is where we say we came into being. It's where the world was made, and then we were made from the space there. And you get a real sense up here of the fact that we have our unbroken connections to land and culture and ceremony. And I think that that has been really powerful to grow up in a space with the peoples of this region and to really learn from Indigenous knowledges in a place that we have very, very long connections to. I, you know, went to school here, graduated from high school here, then went to college. I think my ultimate goal in life was always to return home was really important to me that we were able to continue to sort of grow the future generations of people that wanted to work and do ceremony and cultural practices. And so in about 2009, I founded a nonprofit organization with one of my very good friends called the Native Women's Collective. And our goal was to create a supportive space where we could help to revitalize uh, Native arts and culture practices and really support people who have been doing that work. I think that our area has always been really a powerful place for people because it's really demonstrative of Indigenous peoples constantly trying to make sure that we were carrying on our culture and our our practices, but also really thinking about what that meant for the future of not just us but like the whole planet altogether. Mm. And now I live here in the spaces where what they say is like the river that runs through our valley, it builds us. It's like the water that runs through our veins. It's what made us into the people we are. And I'm able to really connect the work that I do uh, in academia with the work that I want to do in my communities and empower, hopefully, just all peoples to be able to say that there's work that we can do to make sure that we're pushing back, I think, against a settler colonial system that would have us believe that there's nothing beyond colonialism and capitalism and patriarchy, as if there's no way to actually build a world where we can all breathe and drink the water and feel safe. And I think that Indigenous peoples really are the peoples who have envisioned that from the very beginning. We've always been thinking about what's the better world that we can build for everyone, and how does that come from reconnecting and building a responsibility to each other are more than human relatives and the planet.
0: So can we start with history, Kacha, and have you just walk us through a little bit of what happened in Northern California? You just beautifully introduced the people's connection to the land. So it sounds like they were never displaced as so many indigenous communities were. But then what happened when settler colonialists arrived? When did they arrive? How did they interact with the Huba and Yurok and Karuk peoples.
1: When we're talking about what is the currently called the state of California, we're talking about a very large area, and there's a lot of eras of history that take place. What I like to say about California as a state is we're in an amalgam of history all converging into the same place. Any sort of big era you can talk about in history, something happens here in California. So you've got the... So the first invasion by the Spanish, you've got this sort of what happens with the Spanish mission system moving all the way through the rancho, the Mexican rancho system and the sort of change over to Mexico. You've got then here comes the United States with their interests. And that sort of primarily gets pushed into what becomes the gold rush. You've got the post gold rush, sort of like assimilation policies. So California as an experience, I think, is really sort of demonstrating how settler colonialism converges as an area to try to completely displace and destroy and dismantle a population of people. So everything that happens in California historically is about the genocide, removal, and displacement of California Indians. What Roxanne dunbar ortiz says, who she writes a great book called An Indigenous People's History of the United States, is she says everything comes down to land. And what, what really is happening in history is trying to figure out who owns the land, who has the rights to the land and who gets to keep the land and everything comes down to that. And in California, that becomes, they want the land first and foremost, they want the resources, they'll do whatever it takes to get it and they will push whoever they need out of the way and they will kill anybody who gets in the way and that's California Native people. So between 1769, which is the first establishment of the missions in Southern California and then about the early 1900s, through the gold rush, what you're talking about is like a 90% reduction of population of California native peoples. And this is very significant because what Sherman Cook, who is kind of one of the guys who does the most research around numbers, right, of the who exists, who lives here prior to colonization, is he says what happens to the California Indian population that causes such a devastation is three waves of destruction. And the first is the mission system, the second is the rancho system, and then the third is the gold rush. And those three waves are one right after the other. There's no break that California Indians get to recover their population. And so one right after the other, it's about how do we destroy this? Every single goal of each of these eras in history is to destroy California Indians, whether that be through direct attempts at genocide and killing and mass killing or enslavement and pushing into sort of like enslavement labor or dispossession and removal. Not everything is set to sort of push California Indians out. There are instances in California history where what ha- what's happened is, you know, the United States has been expanding for several hundred years and they get to California and the question that people do ask, I mean, there's actual public records where you have people saying, why can't we just run them into the ocean? Why can't we just push them off cliffs? and there are also instances where people did that where they were they were rounding up california native people and they would make them do marches kind of trail of tears within california and they would just make they would forcibly make them jump off the cliffs into the ocean and so you're seeing that the actual goal is to just take everybody out of the situation so that they don't have to do the same type of work that they had to do in other parts of the country with treaty negotiations and agreements What they say about Northern California. So the thing is, is the mission system kind of stops around San Francisco. They build their last mission there. You don't get them coming into Northern California. So what they say about us up here is we are relatively late in the colonization cycle. So we actually are able to maintain a number of years where we do have visitors that come to the area you have the Spanish that are that come in at a certain point, which is why we have some Spanish names in different parts of the region where we live. You have the Russians that are coming in to trade, but you don't get the massive influx and attempt to settle the area until the gold rush. And so, up here, what we are in particularly to deal with is the violence and genocide of the gold rush. I always try to explain to students in my class that you kind of have to understand California history as being about violence. That there's it, it takes violence to build what they were trying to build because they did not want to have to be beholden to indigenous rights. And if you've learned about an era of California history where you're supposed to believe that somehow it was less violent, it was always violence. What Roxanne dunbar ortiz says is, no group of people give up their land, their children and their futures without violence. Mm-hmm. So to be told, oh, they just you know moved forward or they made this decision, they didn't want this anymore. There's always probably some kind of violent story behind that. The violence of the gold rush was palpable. I think as a California Native person, I do a lot of work in the archives. I have to read about and and engage with the gold rush. What I often tell people is these were human beings, and I want people to remember that when they read these stories about what it was like to try and maneuver and survive this time. It was an incredibly violent time. It was also sanctioned by the state of California. I can tell you stories about what happened and just know that none of those people were arrested or tried or put in jail or told that they were doing something wrong, that this was sanctioned by the state of California. So California comes into existence as a state. And then one of the first things it passes uh, in its legislature is the California Volunteer Militia, which they were trying to hire people, everyday average citizens uh, could get Paid for killing California Native people. They passed laws that said that you would get paid per scalp or per head that you turned in. They passed laws that said that you could enslave California Native people through what they called an apprenticeship program. And so if a Native person was arrested, they would go before a justice of the peace. They were not allowed to testify. They actually passed a law that said Californians cannot testify in court. But then the justice of the peace would determine their bail. And if they couldn't pay it, which they often couldn't because they weren't able to get jobs. Anybody who was in that space could pay that Native person's bail, effectively buying them from the justice of the peace, and then say that they work for them now as an apprentice because they paid for their bail. So this enslavement system was very foundational to how like the state of California is built. You're talking like Indians could be arrested for vagrancy, meaning for standing around. They could be arrested for not owning property, which they legally were not allowed to do. They actually then sanctioned the enslavement of California Native children. And so what they said was, if you found a Native child with no parents, that you could take them to the justice of the peace and register them as your apprentice. The easiest way to find an Indian child with no parents is to kill their parents. And people were very open with this. And so you can see letters that were written from people. There was one soldier who wrote a letter to his like commander and he said, I came upon this guy and he had a wagon full of Native kids and he names where they're from. And some of them are from Hoopa. And he said, I asked him, what are you doing? And he said, I'm going to the justice of the peace because they don't have parents and I want to register them as apprentices. And then he goes and I asked him, how do you know they don't have parents? And he said, because we just killed all their parents. So there was a massive enslavement system of children during this period of time. When they look at the records, what they determine is that in Humboldt County, for instance, which is where Hoopa is from and where I'm from, most of the people who were taken into slavery under this law were children. Uh, most of them were ages seven to 12, and most of those were girls. And so I often tell people like, that the, what they were really trading in was young Native girls. That's who got the most money paid for them. That was who was the most wanted. And so when they would target in like Native peoples to take people, they would target young Native girls. And so really what the state of California created was a sex slave industry. They were trading in young native girls, ages seven to 12. And they know this, like they, they know that this happened and you can actually read the records of which families had apprentices and how old they were when they went into the system and things. And so to think about like that, that way that you have to exist, what we talk about in terms of what that meant for us as native peoples is that while we had been a culture in a society that really centered the egalitarian features of what it meant to have a feminist culture which meant that women and men and actually all genders were treated equally and that everybody needed to have representation and space and that they were given the ability by which to navigate our society in multiple ways. And women held like high political status and high social status. They could choose if they wanted to marry or divorce. They could choose where they wanted to live. Like these are things that in a settler colonial culture were actually not not available at the time. And women were actually considered like bad people if they tried to vote. And in an indigenous space, we were like, they get to vote. They get to represent themselves politically. And then what happens is that then you see a targeting of our indigenous girls and women. So in historical records, what you find is when they would go in to do a massacre, for instance, they would often, they would kill men outright. And they would often kill elders as well, because they considered Men were liability, couldn't really use them for labor because they, would, they could run away. Elders were not used for labor, so they would kill them. They would take the women and children because they, that's who was the most wanted within the slavery system. And then they would massacre the babies because nobody wanted to take care of them. And they would do these in the, this in the most violent and public way. There's a lot of personal stories about people having to hide and sit through listening to them take babies and swinging them around and smashing them against rocks until they died or smashing their heads in with like axes and hatchets. There's one story of a child and she hid in the tree because she was trying to not get caught. And she watched as they cut the heart out of her little baby sister and threw it onto the side of the road and she couldn't cry. She couldn't scream. She couldn't make a sound because then they would have caught her. And after they left, she talks about climbing down from the tree and holding her little baby sister in her arms. I always tell people, I don't know if I could have survived that. I don't know if I could have lived through that and come out the other side, but you have these people who did like they did. And they were just like, we have to do whatever it takes. And when it came to like our women's ceremonies, and our women's practices, and like what it meant for our women, we suddenly were like, oh no, we have to protect them because they are really targeting this. And we have to make sure that we are protecting them from these people. And so there's a lot of really important stories around why, how we maneuvered that moment. I think things that people don't understand about that period of time, I mean, really clearly is, when you look at the records, you'll notice that they'll register these young women, 7 to 12, into the system, but they have taken all of the women. And you're like, what happens to the adult women? What happens to the like teenager women? Generally, they were put into uh, concubinage or into prostitution, so they don't have to be registered. And so they just sort of disappear into this system, and they're sold to people. And so we recognize as California native peoples, that there was a period of time where it was like really dangerous for us to have a women's ceremony, to celebrate women, to have women in upper leadership positions, because those are the women who would be targeted. And so what you start to see is like our foundational way that we approach uh, what it means to like have a culture that really values all genders. We change that positionality. We, we change how we approach things some people will tell the story that like we learned or we adapted and we became more advanced but it really was the threat the threat to our people i think the most important thing though that i always tell people about this period of time this genocide this attempted genocide of us is that we we were human beings navigating that and through that demonstrated a type of strength and ability to think about our future i often think about what is it really because I could not imagine having enough strength to to, to do what they did. And what I demonstrate for people is, there was all this time where people were trying to just stop everything about who we are and like just kill us every chance that they got. And we could walk outside and be shot. We could be taken up off the street and never return. And yet we made these decisions where we were like, I have to pass on these stories. I have to remember these things. I have to carry this stuff forward. Because there's someday there's going to be us again, and we're going to need this record, this document, this story, this thing. And they were always thinking, what are we going to do for this future? How are we going to heal this land, this space? They were like, 500 years from now, how do we come back from this? There's a really beautiful story about Hoopa in particular. So Hoopa, as a group of people... We live in our valley. Our valley is the center of the world. Uh, I love that about Hoopa. We're like, you know what the center of the world is? It's in (laughs) Hoopa, And we came into being there. During the sort of gold rush period of time, we negotiated a treaty to keep this area. And what happened in California, which is a really awful situation, is they decide not to ratify the treaties because everyday citizens and the people in the legislature were like, the California Indians are getting too much land. Why don't we just kill them all? Like, why do we have to negotiate and give them land? They push back and Congress decides not to ratify the treaties. They don't tell California natives that that happened. They put them under an injunction of secrecy and, re- and sort of just pretend like nothing happened. So tribes are left in the position of having to renegotiate for what their land spaces are going to be. And it just is, it's, it's just a complete, it's complete chaos for most people. In the case of Hoopa, we fought a war. We fought a five-year-long war against the federal government. And for three years, it was like just consistent war. Making that decision was really difficult for us. We are not a tribe that did war in that we would go and like war with people and kill them. That was not our value at all. To make a decision that we needed to war to keep our area, what that meant, because we knew that's a threat to the government. that. They would consider violence, but we held our position, which is we needed to keep the valley. We needed the valley. At the heart of everything, we wanted our valley. And we held them off for three years until they came back to the table and said, what do you want? And we said, well, we want our valley. We want our our place that we came into being for all time. And then we got an executive order from the president at the time, who was General Grant, who said, okay, we will sign this executive order and you'll be able to keep your land. And I think that that moment demonstrates that Native peoples were experiencing genocide, but they're still politically navigating Mm -hmm. what's happening around them. They are still operating as nations and they are still thinking about like the long-term connections to land and space. So for anybody to think they gave it up or they walked away or it was easy for the taking. No, it was a constant political negotiation, like discussion, pushback there were all these things that native peoples did. And then the response to that was often the threat of massacre. And the idea that like the whole, like a whole group of people would rise up to just still try to get rid of us and that there was no legal repercussions for that. Like we couldn't sue them, we couldn't take them before the justice of the peace. And so when we talk about stolen land, what we're talking about is, it's not just that the land was stolen, It's that what it took to get that land into the possession of the peoples that have it today, it was a genocide. It was an attempted destruction. It was killing and murdering human beings. It was people. So I talk about this in the context of uh, what it means now to live in this land, right? And I think a little bit about, I think about two things. So one, I always tell people I have a daughter and I always say, you know, there was a period of time in California history where they could have shown up to my house at any time that they wanted to, and they could have taken my daughter from me, or we could have been at a ceremony, and they would have shown up and they would have torn her from my arms, and I don't know what I would have I done. done. What would I have done? How do you navigate that as a person? And I want people to think about it. If I give you the statistics and I say there was this many massacres and there was this many people put into slavery during the 1800s, that's one thing. But to think about what do you do? When they tear your daughter away from you and she's screaming and crying, and you don't know how to stop it. Like, how do you navigate that moment? And then, what does it mean that even after that, California natives were still fighting? They were writing letters, they were holding protests, they were demanding people show up and tell them where their kids are. They never stopped, they never gave up. They were just like, I want my daughter back. And what you will see is like letters that are written where they're writing to, the heads of the forts and the president himself and the governor. And they're like, my daughter was taken from me. I want her back. And to remember that we were people. I don't know what I would have done. I swear. I, I Every day I, t- I tell people, I don't know what I would have done if they would have tried to take her from me. I just, I can't even imagine it. Right. But I can know that like, that strength carries through me. So in the case of Tuluat, which is an island in Northern California that they recently just returned, actually, to the Wiat peoples a couple of years ago. The city of Eureka made a decision to return to Luat, which is a sacred space for Wiat peoples. It's a place of world renewal for them. It's the center of their world. Mm-hmm. And it was taken because of a massacre that occurred there in the 1800s. And this was one of the largest massacres in our region. And it was done. It was committed against Wiat peoples. When they were in a ceremony, they were in a world renewal ceremony. So you had people who showed up in the middle of the night to the island. The island happened to, at that time, have primarily women, children, and elders there because the men, when they were in ceremony, would stay in a different place. They showed up in the middle of the night. They used what they called quiet weapons. This would be like no guns. They didn't want anybody to know what was happening. So it was mostly hatchets and knives. I often tell people, think about what that takes, how- what that means was really happening to these people as they're awoken in the middle of the night to people mass murdering them and that, that the kind of killing that that is, like people can beg for their lives. People can, can cry and beg and plead for their lives because there's enough time where you're sort of having to watch that happen. They also talk about how people were running and they would get stuck in the mud because of the island is very muddy at certain times. So they couldn't actually move. And there were two survivors of that massacre. One was a baby that survived. And the other was a woman, this woman. What they know about her is that she was stuck in the mud, that she was surrounded by the like murdered peoples of her tribe that she had grown up with. The sun rose that day and they came to see what had happened and they found her stuck in the mud and she was singing. And I just think about what that took right? She was singing a song. And the tribal elder who talks about this, what she says is that she thinks she was singing a mourning song, M-O-U-R, mourning, that she thinks she was singing a mourning song because what she said was, here's this woman who has watched, who has experienced this horrific thing. And she looks around and says, I have to sing my people to the next world. And the fact that we're having this conversation now, that I'm sitting here as a PhD, like as a doctor, if you would have told anyone during that period of time, don't worry, they'll be telling this story. I, I think you would have had a lot of people saying that that would be impossible, but we knew it was possible. It's the reason why we kept telling the stories to move forward.
0: Did you grow up knowing those stories, Katja? Was that kind of passed along to you from your ancestors, from your, you know, your grandparents and your parents, or were it a lot of these learned as you started researching for your book?
1: No, it's really something that we grow up with. I think if we're fortunate enough to have family members that are, you know, really constantly telling these kinds of stories, we grow up with it. We, mm-hmm. I remember driving around with my mom and we would drive over the bridge in Humboldt and she would point and she would say, that's Tuluat. That's a place mm-hmm. called Renewal. She would say, they tried to massacre people there. You have to know that. What she would say, and what my great-grandfather would always say are things like, the history is written on the landscape too. Like the land knows what happened. Mm -hmm. It had to sort of experience that kind of destruction. So we see it everywhere. Everywhere around you is this genocidal sort of like settler colonial history that is attempting to kind of destroy. And it's not just destroying the peoples, it's destroying the land, the more Mm -hmm. than human relatives, like the birds and the bears, like all these things w- that we're seeing now are a result of an a, like an attempted genocide of California mm-hmm. Native peoples. So the land itself is scarred, and and needs to be able to heal, and that starts with telling the story of understanding what happened. Mm-hmm. I think most of us grew up hearing from people about what happened in the Gold Rush. I think it's important. I've done work with my own daughter, but I also do work in like curriculum development and interventions. And what I'll say to people quite often is like, what we know from the statistics and the sort of reports is that native children are the least likely to graduate from high school and they're the least likely to go into higher education. They struggle the most with high rates of suspension and referrals, and they get pushed into this sort of like system. And then what you see is that they're not succeeding. And and we know that. And then I say, now let's look at what we do to them in curriculum we teach them a curriculum that disempowers the story of what it means to have moved through this because we take out any of the sort of violence or discussion about what it means to live in this system today and then we teach this sort of sanitized history and we disempower native youth through those stories and so they how can they be successful in that when they are able to learn these truths and i think this is for all children but also native kids they suddenly recognize why it is that they walk around and feel a a sense of this world very differently and like Mm -hmm. what it is that they're experiencing. My own daughter, when she did her California mission project, because the California mission project itself is like really sanitizing the mission system, also an enslavement system, also an attempted genocide, right? She had to do a mission project and we agreed that she would do the San Diego mission. And what she did is she built it and then she's Originally, I said we can build it, and then we're going to set it on fire, and <laughs> in, like the ashes I like of, this it. I system, of this mission, because I the two I, who are the people of San Diego, led a revolt against the mission mm. where they set it on fire and wow. burned it to the ground. So I was like, it's historically accurate. I love it. Turn in like the charred remnants of this mission. Uh, her teacher was like, we can't, we can't just have charred remnants. Right. So I said, so she actually built the San Diego mission and then put like flames going up the side of it and made it look like it was on fire and that had native people like running in. And she then used her whole essay about it to talk about the Kumeyaay revolt, but never from a perspective of this is what happened. And then it was done. She was talking about what it means for the Kumeyaay today that they survived this mission system, that now they're revitalizing their languages, their cultures, that now they're really invested in like their community practices, that like she talked about it as, this is how this informs our current mm-hmm. experience. And that's what you need to know when you're learning about the mission system. And it was a really powerful moment for her because I actually asked her, like, does it make you feel bad? You had to learn sort of these things that happened in the mission system because she wrote about it in her report. And she was only in the fourth grade, right? Mm-hmm. And I was like, does it make you feel bad? You had to learn about sort of some of the horrific things that happened to the people in this mission. And she said, no, mom, it made me feel like California Indians are really powerful and they're really important. And they're a significant part of this history. It made me feel like we were, we are important people. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, that is why I think this is so important. So I always tell people like, we grow up knowing it. Mm-hmm. So when you kind of think about when you're kind of saying, I oh, don't know if we can teach this kind of history to kids, we grew up knowing it. Yeah. So really, who, who are we protecting when we're saying we can't teach it in totally.
0: school? Yeah. The white kids, and they need to know it. They really need to know it. They need to grow up. They cannot be like I was 40 years old before someone ever says to them, you realize you live on stolen land, right? People need to know that from the time they're kids. Ugh. <sighs> Okay, well, Katja, let's shift gears just a little bit and and talk about kind of the the title of the book and the subject of the book, We Are Dancing For You, Native Feminisms and the Revitalization of Women's Coming-of-Age Ceremonies. So can we go to what these coming-of-age ceremonies were originally and then the process of revitalizing them? Yeah, I mean, I think... What's
1: interesting about coming of age ceremonies for Native peoples in general is that they've always been really important to the cultural, societal makeup of who Native peoples are. And what I always say is there's not a lot that the sort of ethnographers and anthropologists that do this kind of cross-cultural work are willing to say are, is universal to a Native, like a Native group, Native Americans in general. Because we're so diverse from each other. There's Mm -hmm. over 500 different tribes, like just federally recognized in the United States. Mm -hmm. But what they will say is that every tribe in North America had some kind of women's coming of age ceremony that was in particular done around a woman's first menstruation. And so they're like, this is something that they viewed and valued as particularly significant to a healthy society. It's being able to demonstrate the importance of the role of women within their culture. I found that very significant because really it's around menstruation. And so a lot of the times people will ask me questions about, well, what about people who don't identify as women but menstruate, right? People who menstruate. And I say, well, we really, I mean, we are talking about inequality across genders. And so if you're saying you're a person who menstruates, then you also would have had some kind of coming of age ceremony, because it really is something important that we identify as what's happening in your life and your body and your experience. And I think it was really cool. I always say to people, I feel like Native peoples were were the first developmental psychologists. We were looking at this situation and we were going, you know what is difficult? Adolescence and you know what is really hard to navigate through that moment when your body and life is changing. You know what we should do? Something Mm -hmm. to like actually help. So we have this entire ceremony that's really set up to empower a young person as they're moving through adolescence and really as they're understanding what's happening, specifically around like menstruation and menstrual practices. I think also, you know, both historically and contemporary wise, it's a real community-based ceremony. It's a way to help a young person to understand that they have a support system, that they're not alone, that they're a key part of their community, that they're going to come into different roles and that that's okay, that they have the tools they need to navigate that. It empowers them to start thinking about how they make decisions in their own lives. It asks them to make decisions, but in a way that they're very supported the entire time. I also think it's a really key ceremony for helping people to connect across like families and cultures, because oftentimes a young person would be coming, could be coming from two different tribes, like their parents got married, but not everybody's coming together. So politically it like creates good, like political will amongst people. They're able Mm -hmm. to sort of like know each other better. It creates connections to land that helps you to understand your responsibility to the land and place that you come from and how you are integral to whether or not the water is clean enough that you can actually use it you're integral to understanding your connection to all of the more than human relatives that you that are part of this ceremony through your regalia the things that you're wearing it connects you to all of those things and i feel like it does that still to this day there was a period of time where we didn't do this dances publicly and one thing that they'll say about hoopa In the literature is that we were very public about our women's ceremonies in fact we're one of the tribes that they identify as being some of the most public people we had big celebrations and then what you see in colonization is that patriarchy is like at the heart of what needs to happen for settler colonialism to actually work they need a patriarchal foundation to that and not just that they need a hetero patriarchal foundation So they come in and they see that our society is very what a lot of people sort of are talking about now. Like we're a very like queered society to them because we have representation of all different kinds of genders, all different kinds of roles, all different kinds of ways people like love and live with each other. And they are just like, this is, this is unacceptable. So they really decide that they have to change that about us. And that particularly becomes to them about targeting women and then queer individuals for either assimilation or eradication. And so when that happens, we we know that they're targeting our women's ceremonies in particular. There's stories in California, especially about them making decisions that if we're performing a women's ceremony, they would show up to that ceremony. They would take that girl in particular to, to rape her. And they would be like, this is because one, we're like, you you guys are doing something wrong by celebrating her. And two, you're advertising her as a woman. now. And this is what we could do. So at a point, doing that is dangerous. We also had a lot of like menstrual customs and practices that really were about empowering women. And one of the things I do in the book, there's a chapter where I'm specifically talking about like why we believe certain things about indigenous peoples and menstruation And that all comes from like anthropology making this decision that somehow we're supposed to be like primitive and backward. But really, in reality, our practices and customs around menstruation were about the power that comes from menstruation and the fact that it actually elevates your status and it makes you like a really important part of a culture and society. And how are you going to sort of navigate and maneuver this period of time, which deserves the respect of concentrated meditation and engagement and It deserves the respect of what you bring to your culture of society because of what is like you're able to experience during this period of time. And so we have these practices where women would go into what we call the minch or the women's house and during their menstruation, and this was the time for them to be in concentrated meditation. And really what that meant is that their family was taking care of them, bringing them food and drinks and doing their hair and helping them feel really comfortable and They would engage in a lot of really important conversation. I've actually had people tell me that they felt like it was like almost like a think tank because you have a bunch of women in the space together and they would just talk about what should the world look like? What should we do? Because they had time to sort of really concentrate during this period of time and they're being taken care of. Then they could come out and be like, this is what our ideas are. It also was considered one of the most powerful places in the village because menstruation is really tied to an uptick in power and ability. And so women after they gave birth would be in there with their newborn babies, because we were like, that's the most powerful and safest place that you can be during this period of time. Women who had had miscarriages or were having like particular issues would go in there because they were like, that's the most powerful place that you can be. And that will be the place that people can heal you and help you. There's stories about medicine women. So like in our cultures, especially Northern California, it's primarily women who are the doctors. They're like the medicine Hmm. people. Mm -hmm. And there's like multiple different kinds of doctors. This is one reason why you can demonstrate that like we had a really important status like in our culture and society. But there's stories about like medicine women who are doing work to try to help somebody with whatever is sort of ailing them. And then they feel like it's not working and they'll say, bring me the menstruating women because they are the most powerful women and they can help me. To fix this situation that I'm in. And this is really important because we stop doing a lot of those types of practices, especially during the gold rush. And the story that gets told is because we figure out that it's it's uncivilized or it's backward to do that. But in reality, it's because it's completely dangerous to send a woman to a woman's house, to have a house filled with women when you're talking about them being taken and put into these situations, right? Because of the gold rush and the ongoing massacres and genocide. And then what happens is it becomes dangerous to talk about it. And so when the ethnographers come in, sort of post this gold rush period, and they start asking all these questions about like, what about your women's practices? A lot of people are like, no, we don't do that. Or we don't have that. Or they sort of push it aside or they pretend like it's not going on because they don't know what it's going to be used for. They don't know what's going to happen. And one thing that gets pointed out a lot in the records is Even though there's all these people writing about, practicing these menstrual customs, nobody actually had ever seen one because they were not invited. We were still doing them, they were not invited, but also uh, by the time they get there, you're talking about being post this genocidal period of time. What that means for us today, we're revitalizing. We're We're building a resurgence. Our current ceremonial practice is around bringing this dance back. We started that process over 20 years ago having this discussion, I think elders have always been talking about the women's ceremony because in Hupa, we had three sort of primary ceremonies that we do that are called the the high dancers or the dances that are done for all time in the world beyond. And two of those are rigorously sort of researched and studied because we maintained those even through all of the genocide. So that's the white deerskin dance and the jump dance. That's what they're called in English, right? We've done those consistently the way we're supposed to and to keep the world in balance to keep the world healthy it's why a lot of ethnographers and anthropologists have written about them because during the 1900s they're like oh they're still doing this dance let's this is obviously very important but we weren't doing the third dance that is done for all time and that is the flower dance or the women's coming of age ceremony called the Hokit Chiswal, and When they came to look at what we were doing, they would say, oh, you guys are a very male focused culture because the two dances that we were doing primarily feature men dancing and singing. It does not mean that women are not integral and key to doing those ceremonies. But when you're talking about who's doing the dancing and singing, that's primarily men. So they were like, this is a male focused patriarchal culture. Mm. But they're missing that our third dance that you had to do in order to keep the world in balance, according to our first people, our kahenai, is the women's coming of age ceremony. And they're missing that the reason why we weren't doing that at the time was because of this violence and genocide. Mm-hmm. So when we decide to bring it back, we're looking at all these records and stories to try to, to try to build something that recreates this ceremony for us today. It took a lot of years. It took a lot of like reading and outreach. But what I will also say that is pointed out in the book, Our Medicine Woman talks about how like All we had to do is scratch the surface. All we had to do was say, like, we want this dance back. And then things just started happening for us because she was like, it wants to be again. It wanted to come back to us. We truly know that, like, it exists and it says, okay, they want me now. And part of the ceremonial practice is we actually have to call the dance down to us. Uh, Part of the Mm -hmm. ceremonial practice is that the girl herself has to sing a song to the other world and say, can you send this dance to me? And then what we say is they stop and they point their sticks in our direction. Sometimes we say they even come to that dance because they're giving us the dance because they're doing it right now. They're doing it for all time, all three of those dances. And we call it down to us when we need it here. And what she said is, is like the minute we called it, the minute we were like, let's do it now, things just started coming to us. People remembered things they didn't know that they remembered elders had dreams and they would then call people up and be like, I forgot, I forgot that when I was a kid, I went and did this thing and my grandma told me this. We started to find things in people's houses they didn't even know were there, papers or things people had written, things people had jotted down. Just a bunch of information kept coming to us, again, because our medicine woman was like, because we called it to us. That's all we had to do. Like, all we had to do was say, can we have it, please? And they were like, oh, you want it, here's everything. Uh, and now we've been able to take all of that information and build a ceremonial practice that I think is not just empowering for our young people, but also for all the generations that didn't get to have a ceremony, that, that, that we weren't quite doing it yet. I think it's also powerful for our elders because I think this is what they envisioned. They never stopped talking about it. They never stopped bringing it up. They never stopped trying to get us to do it. And now we're doing it. And I think for them, I think seeing something like that come into being is really demonstrative of the fact that we can do this. Like we can change the world if we want to. I will tell you, I feel like with this revitalized ceremony, we have changed the world. So if we can do that, then it has to help us to believe that we can do that and all the things that we need to do.
0: Mm-hmm. That's amazing. I was going to ask you one of the things that stuck out to me was that you talk about the first kind of the first generation that was doing the ceremony after a long time of not having it been done, that they were a little more hesitant and nervous, probably because they had absorbed some of the colonizing culture of kind of embarrassment around menstruation. And they were like, oh, I don't know if I want to do this so publicly, but that really soon, like within a few years the next generation of young girls were requesting it, right? And saying, I want a flower dance, you know, when it's my turn. Can you talk a little bit about that? And also from the point of view of the girl, what does she do during the flower dance? And what does the community do? To, what does it look like for her?
1: Yeah, I think the important thing is, I always tell people it took 10 years mm-hmm. to just completely intervene on the patriarchy that had been internalized by yeah. a lot of us I mean, the first generation, I think it's a primary concern about the the public declaration of menstruation, but there was also just the internalization of a patriarchal culture that tells you as a woman, you're not supposed to be the center. You're not supposed to be out there. You're not supposed to be creating yourself as a leader, that there's some other role that you're supposed to take. And so pushing back against all of that, right. And then pushing back against this idea that somehow we were going to do something like weird. There was, because nobody had really seen it. And so they were like, well, what's going to happen? And Mm. (laughs) this idea that you internalize this somehow, what indigenous peoples do is is weird or odd or not what you would want to do. But it took only 10 years. And after that 10 years, you had the first girl who was like, I want this. This is what I want. And I'm going to do whatever it takes to get it. And I'm going to put all the stuff together. And I think what was really beautiful about that change is what you saw is they really talked about that they had seen these girls who had done it and who had taken that opportunity and who had pushed themselves even with the hesitation. And they're like, and then I've seen who they've become and I want that. I want it like that. And so then they start really pushing themselves. And I think I can tell so many stories now about young girls who really like, they're coming from situations where they were like, my parents can't help me in this situation. Like, we had a couple of like foster youth who were like, I don't really have a parental family situation that can actually help me put this dance together, but I'm going to do it. And they would come to our medicine people and they would say, this is what I want to do. And I've started this process. There was one girl who her parents were going through like a really difficult time. And she's just like, I want to have a ceremony. And I also know that they're like in their own situation. So she went fishing one day and she caught like a big fish and she walked up the hill to my parents' house. And they were like, what are you doing here? And she said, I brought you a fish. I want to hire you. I want you to do my dance. And that moment was really important because it was like them seeing that they could also step into that function. I think it's really interesting now because I wrote the book while we were sort of like going through this process. I, w- I kept telling people my goal was to document it from the perspective of us because I didn't want anybody else to be the voice to write about this because mm-hmm. this work we did, and for far too long, we've had our ceremonies written about from other people, and it was our turn to sort of tell this story, and we needed to make sure the story was ours. But I did it sort of like through graduate school and after graduate school, and then worked on the book for a couple of years. And I had always been in multiple roles. I've been the role of an auntie, a community member, of a supporter. Right. It was just this last year that I got to be the mom because my daughter. And it was really interesting because I always use my daughter as an example of when I like her growing up, what I realized about her is she's never known a time when we didn't do this. So she was born after we had already been doing it for a number of years. So in her mind, this is just what we do. Like, it's not like a question of the time when we didn't do it versus now, which a lot of us carry forward. But instead, this is just who we are. And like Hoopa people celebrate young women when they start menstruating. Hoopa people do these kinds of dances. Hupa, like She's been planning her dress. She's been planning her people. She's been like talking to people about her dance since she was born. And this is where I see how quickly you can push back against settler colonialism, which acts like the longest period of time is when we didn't do it because of Mm -hmm. what, like all the things, but actually to the world of our next generation, the longest period of time is that we only do it. That's what we do. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't like, and I think that's so beautiful how quickly this can become their world. And we sort of like pretend like this, we hold on to this idea that, Southern colonialism is forever, that it's always going to be there. And I was like, but how quickly for this group, they were just like, no, that's just what we do. And this is who we are. And this is what's important. And so she got to do her ceremony this past summer. And it was a real eye-opening experience in terms of, I think, understanding developmentally what it's like to be a mom versus sort of a community member or an auntie. Mm. I always tell people that you learn something new every time you think about and do ceremony. That's what ceremony is supposed to be for. There's not like a standard thing I can tell you that every girl does because it's very, it's dependent on what she needs. There's some aspects of it that are really like, we, we try to have them each do it, but they do it in their own way. And she spends a lot of her time during the day doing multiple sort of things that will help her to demonstrate to herself that she has this strength and fortitude to be able to navigate life. Uh, she does a long run each day. It gets longer each day that she's in ceremony. Running, for some reason, is universal to most of the coming of age ceremonies in Native cultures. We saw the value of running and like sort of connecting both to land and yourself in multiple aspects of women's ceremonies. In our ceremony, what we say is how she runs is how she will live her life. And so the path is representative of the life that she's going to live. And we want to demonstrate to her that she can do it and she can make her own decisions. So she can run as fast or as slow as she wants to. If she stumbles, she's supposed to go back and do that same part of the path again to demonstrate. Like sometimes you're going to stumble, right? And then you got to go back and try again. If she falls down, she has to pick herself up. If she wants to pause and stop. So she's running to like sacred bathing spots that we have along the river. If she wants to stop there for a while, she can. If she wants to do it for a short time, she can. We're trying to demonstrate for her, you can do this. You're going to be fine. This is the life that you're going to lead and you can do it. As a mom, it was really interesting to experience that my job was to show up and hand her over to like her medicine person and her grandma. Mm -hmm. And then her aunties would come around her. But I didn't really see her for three days uh, of the ceremony. She was in ceremony for 10 days. So she was in isolation from me for 10 days. And then the public part of the ceremony is like three, five or seven days depending. But I didn't really see her a lot. And I remember I always tell people when she was a kid, one time she had to go on this like sleepaway camp. And I woke up dead of night and I woke up my husband and I was like, what if she's cold? <laughs> like, totally. What if she's cold? What yeah. happens? And he goes, oh, I'm, not- I'm I said, we should call her and make sure she's not cold. But they took her cell phone. So who do I call? I'm going to check in and make sure. And he was just like, no, I'm sure she'll figure it out. And then she like came home and I was like, so how'd it go? And she was like, oh, it was fine. But one day I went to go to the bathroom. I got kind of lost in the middle of the night when I came back. But then I figured it out. And I was just like, you can look. like I was freaking out about this. And I always tell people there's something really important about that moment of giving her over and then having to just sort of experience as she makes these decisions on her own. I think that's important for her. That she doesn't need me to make those decisions for her. I think it's important for me to be able to be like, I, you can do it. Like, you're going to be okay. All those things I see now that I didn't, I'm thinking about those interconnections. I think that a lot of what she does too is she connects with other community members. So we select for her, like a group of women that we know will be there for her for the rest of her life. Generally, like close friends, aunties, like people who are sort of representative of people she can turn to, because sometimes you don't want to just talk to your mother or father. You need to have community. So they come, they do talking circles with her, they do exercises, they do um, discussions, they like teach her something so that she can see that she has a community around her. What my mom says, both in the book, but she talks about a lot because my mom is a medicine person. She says, what does it mean? when a community will stop the world for you? Like, what does it mean for you as a young person to to see that a community will stop the world for you? They will show up. They will be there each day. They will stay all night on the last night and sing for you. She's like, what does that mean for you when you start to think about, do I matter in the world? Well, you can't ever go out in the world and think you don't matter. A whole community did everything they could to tell you, you are important to us. And this is why we're here for you. So if you come to see the actual ceremony, what you'll see is us dancing and singing at night. And she's in the corner of the house and she has a blanket over her. She's in a sort of time of concentrated meditation. So she needs to be under this space so that she's not sort of paying attention to everything around her. It's supposed to help her to demonstrate to herself that she can do this. She can have control over her own emotions and feelings. We're there. Singing songs, we're laughing, we're like sharing stories. Her job is to; she's supposed to try to not laugh. I think this is great about us. We say that like, it's another way of her demonstrating her own control. But we say if she laughs, she's going to get wrinkles later. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so, but we tell just jokes all day. We tell jokes all night. We will make. Like, I would say we're hilarious at four o'clock in the morning. Like, <laughs> I have no filter at that point. We're trying to make her laugh, and what I love about interviewing some of the girls is we were talking about this, and I I was like. Well, what was that like? And they said, "Well, sometimes it was really funny," so I laughed. But what I thought was, "I'm going to be a really happy, wrinkly old woman." I love. Like I have so much. So joy is a huge part of this. Like we try to make it a really supportive and joyful space. What our medicine woman talks about sometimes, she says, "There's a lot of, in the world, they're not create. They don't create joy for our indigenous youth. Moments of just feeling joy about being an indigenous person." And we are creating joy in a world of trauma, and we're like pushing back against trauma through joy. And what does that mean as indigenous peoples that we value laughter and joy in particular, what you need to build? Because that part of the ceremony is not something we added in. It is it was very clear in the in the ways that we got instructions from our first people that we have to bring in laughter and fun and joy. Like this is very important It actually is key to most of our ceremonies. We have a time and, like most of our ceremonies, you're supposed to try to make somebody laugh. It's really <laughs> interesting how like important humor was to us <laughs> and still is to us. I think also what you might see then is on the last day, she kind of comes out, she's been in ceremony and uh, she does a final run. She is, comes out in a full regalia dress that she's usually made or that is part of her family. And then we're able to receive blessings from her because we say that this is the time in her life when she is one of the most powerful beings that we can have in our space. All that that we did for her, she's brought into herself. And so she will take and receive blessings from us. We often give her gifts to sort of welcome her into the world, to help her to kind of build a foundation. Because what we said is we never wanted anybody to feel like they didn't have enough so that they had to sort of make compromises in their life. So we bring gifts, we bring things that she's going to need Um, And then we accept blessings and then we eat because eating is a huge part of who we are as indigenous peoples. You have to feed people. You have to make sure that they're like eating well. So we have a big like feast. I will say that my daughter, like she, when I watched her come out of that moment, it was really interesting to see as a mom, this like young woman kind of emerge from this space and I remember I had to sing the final song in her ceremony with, with the medicine person. And I was like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this. And then she said, okay, but just don't look at her. If you look at her, you're going to start crying. So don't look at her. So the whole time I'm like looking down, like trying to sing this song and I would sneak these peaks or whatever. And she was confident, confident in a world where I don't think most, you know, 14 year old girls get to be confident. And she was just confident in herself and what she was doing there. And that has been carried forward in all the girls that I've talked to. This idea that I can take up space and I can be confident. I can be be the person that leads. And a lot of the times people will say how important that has been for like the men and the young men in our community, how important that has been to actually dismantle patriarchy. Yes, Because what she says is, when you sing and dance over a girl, you can't think of her as an object anymore. She ke- you cannot objectify her. You have done something like really important and ceremonial and sacred with her. So now she's not an object. She's a person. And not only is she a person, but she's an unsacred person to you. And so she's like, this is how we're dismantling a patriarchal belief that somehow women are like objects or less than or to be treated because you can't, She's, like, you just can't because you have seen her at her most powerful, you yeah. have seen this hat, like her come into herself and into being, how do you then ever take that away from how you view her in the future? And I think it's really a powerful pushing against this patriarchy that sort of says that women aren't supposed to take on roles like that. And I noticed it in like my own father. When I was 12, I started menstruation and uh, I had to call my dad and he didn't know how to respond to that. I remember he mm-hmm. was like, Okay, like he just didn't know what to do. And I was like, Yeah, I didn't want to call you either, Dad. Like I <laughs> with my life. But my mom made me, right? Yet now my dad is in his 70s, and young girls will show up to his house with my mom and they'll sit down and he'll say, What are you doing here? And they'll say, I started my period. I started menstruating. And he'll go, congratulations, oh my you have to have a 4 dance. That's so exciting. You should feel really proud of yourself. And they'll have like conversations. It's his first response. It's his first instinct to this moment. And I think even those kinds of moments are really showing that the work that we're doing to physically enable our older generations, our current generations, our future generations to, sh- to demonstrate that we can, we can dismantle patriarchy. We can build a world without it. And, and how important that's going to be to then these young people growing up and being like, I don't accept patriarchy as something that is supposed to exist. I know what the world looks like, feels, mm-hmm. and functions without it.
0: Wow, that's so powerful. And that was actually the next question I was going to ask you, and you already answered it. But I, I did want to bring out, I was really surprised as I was reading about the flower dance at the point that it did um, become apparent to me, like, oh, the whole community is there. The brothers are trying to make her laugh and there's grand grandfathers and there's and then yes, it it moved on to that section that you just spoke about that you know, teenage boys and it totally de- destigmatizes too, menstruation that the whole community can be excited about it. And I just am so inspired. I I mean it's it's really, really stunning, and I'm so so grateful. Sad that we have to wrap up our conversation, Katcha, because this has just been so fascinating and instructive and I really just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart and is there anything that you'd like to leave us with as we wrap up the episode yeah
1: sometimes people will cuz now that I've experienced it as like a mom and they'll ask me sort of did it change your your understanding of what was happening in the space and I think it extended this idea that I think everybody that's doing this ceremony you're always doing it at different parts in your life and I think you get out of the things that you're doing what you need to get in that moment. So that's the beautiful thing about how you teach through ceremony because you're never gonna get the same thing twice, right? And the girls tell me that what they've learned and in the moment that they take with them, they constantly go back to their flower dance, their story their as a moment to refer to when they have questions about what am I supposed to do now? And so even as they're become, like now some of the girls I've interviewed cause you know, like research projects and things take a while. They're having their own children. They're actually a number oh, of yeah. them, wow. just this year had, had a children and mm-hmm. they constantly go back to, I know I can do this. I know I mm-hmm. can get through this because I got through this thing when I was like 12 and 13 and 14 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and they talk about like how those lessons carry through their entire life. They, they also talk about how it carried through them being able to feel successful in college. One of the girls talked to me about how she said the first time everybody had to pull like an all nighter everybody was freaking out, like, how am I going to stay up all night and write this paper? And she said, I said to myself, wait, I've stayed up like all night after having fasted all day and then did a like mile long run. And then I'm sitting underneath the blanket next to a fire and I was fine. So I can do this,
0: mm-hmm. right? So
1: like the way in which it like constantly helps to inform a foundation of them moving through all stages of their life. It's not sort of just that moment, but there is something about the intervention at that moment. And I think it's important for people to understand that What the studies say, and this is sort of across the board, is that in general, when we have our young people who are experiencing what they call like adolescence, Mm -hmm. that a a girl's self-esteem plummets during adolescence, while a boy's will increase or stay the same. So we know whatever we're doing in this contemporary culture that we live in, it is plummeting the self-esteem of girls. And then what you're seeing in girls is that the onset of suicidal ideation is 11 12 and 13 and the onset of uh substance abuse seeking behaviors is t- 11 12 and 13 so what we're doing to them in this moment is is just like causing this massive spiral of why we have the situations that we have with a number of our young people and especially our young women and this this particular ceremony intervenes at that moment and is like, no you're important you have these tools. We are centering you here and we're going to help you through this time. And I think that's so important. I think intervening at that moment, building that foundation, what I've seen now, because we have 15, 20 years of these girls now who are doing this work, is that that foundation is important and that they have drawn from that multiple times. And so with my own daughter, when I was watching her sort of build this foundation, people said, well, what did you like learn? And I said, you know what I learned this time? Because I learned something new every time. What I learned this time is that I needed to figure out how to become the mother that she needed and not the mother that I expected myself to be Hmm. or the mother that like anybody else expected. And so being able to, to pause and be like, I have to figure out how to be her mom through this period of time. I think it it changed and adapted how we approach each other, our relationship. I also think there's something very insightful about the kahenai, like our first people being like, you know what you need at this time is a break from your mom. You're a teenage girl and what you need is a break from your mom. And I feel like that's a very insightful thing because I think that that is totally true. Um, And we got to reconfigure how we see each other. And I feel like mending and healing and building those foundational relationships again mm-hmm. at adolescence, I think we're going to see that that's a praxis that is should be universalized. Mm-hmm. And I, I am constantly learning as we're doing this ceremony. I'll probably have new insights when I'm the grandma and I'll have new insights, you know, as I'm continuing to
0: see how this builds in our community. Mm-hmm. Oh, I also was thinking I this should be universalized as well. And just for listeners who are, li- you know, listening to it and who get the book and read it. And again, I just highly recommend it. I I would say this is something that could be, that can inspire us to come up with a ceremony that we want to do in our own family. Of course, not appropriating someone else's culture, not appropriating someone else's religion or practice, but think what would make sense that's authentic to me or to my family history that goes back to my ancestors or something new that I wanna do. But just, I totally agree to celebrate girls and boy the the image that comes to mind from you just speaking now that didn't stand out to me as much when i read the book but just now of the girl on the run deciding for herself like how fast to go where to go when to pause when to go faster and i thought you know any ritual that that i have undergone i guess at different rites of passage in my life have been all Directed by men, very heavily prescribed and first do this, now do this. And even with the, the love that has been there for me, it has all been very much the messages like, don't question, this is the way you need to do it. And just the, the completely different message to give to a 12 year old girl to say, you're c- completely capable of doing this super hard thing all by yourself. We're here to support you. But you decide. You can do it, and just the confidence that that would give you. Anyway, I would love to see every um, young girl get that in their family and their community too. So, I always say
1: our, our medicine woman when she talks to the girls, they're like, "Well, what if I am like really slow?" She said, "We'll wait for you."
0: Oh, like- I love it.
1: Don't, you know, don't like concern yourself. Like with what is everybody else going to, like, we'll wait for you. That's our, that's what we're going to do. And then they're like, well, what if I take a lunch? She's, we will wait for you. That's not something we're going to say. Okay. We're walking away. And, but I also think like people ask me a lot, they're like, what about the things we can do for other girls? And I always say, you know, there's been a lot of studies about this because there's been a lot of studies which show that. Girls walk out of this period of time just completely devastated by what happens to them in adolescence, but also the messaging that they get. The studies also show that the simplest thing you can do that actually combats this is to have an open, frank, and honest conversation with them about your experiences, especially positive experiences around menstruation and adolescence, to open them up to the fact that it's a shared experience that Mm -hmm. people have to have that moment and to stop and actually have that moment with them. I was like, I wish it was super complicated in terms of what they say actually works. It's not. It's let's create a space to talk, to celebrate and build a camaraderie around these moments. And I think even something like that is just a start. Now, what I always tell people is I don't think any 12 or 13 year old girl I've ever met acts like they're super excited to do that part. But you do it anyway. It's like what we learned about this ceremony. Do it anyway. They have a lot of questions and hesitancy perhaps, but after what you're building is the foundation. And and that can be a number of things for people. And I think that that's what I encourage people to do is just start by saying, I'm going to start having open, frank, and honest conversations. I also tell people, don't be afraid to have those conversations with everybody in your life. Like talk to people about what's going on. I talk about menstruation all the time. You can ask me anything you want to about my menstruation. I also tell my students, stop hiding like tampons and pads when you're going to walk to the bathroom. Stop hiding them in your hands or sticking them deep in your pockets. Like it's those are the things that we have to destigmatize and and really to demonstrate to a young person as they're going through this moment that you're going to stop the world for them if you need to. It doesn't have to just look like a prescriptive sort of like indigenous ceremony, which I think comes from like a real historical connection to what we're doing. It can also look like I'm going to have a real moment where I'm empowering you as a young person and I'm going to have this conversation and I'm going to celebrate it and I'm going to always be open to your experience with that.
0: Well, Dr. Katcha Rislingbaldi, I am so, so grateful for this conversation. I'm grateful for your book. I learned so much from you and really am just so grateful that you joined me on the podcast today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Before I go, I'd also like to thank Sam Rose Preminger for our production, Brianna Jovan for our editing, and Lindsay Olibus for our social media. And thanks to all of you for listening. As always, you can head over to our website at breakingdownpatriarchy.com and our Instagram account at bedownpatriarchy for additional content and resources for today's episode. And if you'd like to help support the podcast, please consider sharing it with others, posting about it on social media, and leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That's all for this week, but be sure to join us again next time as we continue to become more educated, informed, connected, and active on Breaking Down Patriarchy.